We've been in the Gospel of John for a while, and we're nearing the end. We're nearing the end of uh, this written account of Jesus' life. And I, I love John because it's so unique. It's so different than the other Gospels. And it's specific in there. The author specific that the purpose for writing this Gospel is that the readers might know Jesus, might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in believing in Jesus may receive life. And so we, 2,000 years later, get to read through this and, and ask God, what, what do you have in this passage for us today? And so we're excited to get to do that. And today we'll be in John 18. So leading up to this, Jesus has been uh, walking with, leading his disciples as uh, they travel from uh, synagogue to synagogue in Israel, uh, teaching about God and the kingdom of God that is coming into this world as his disciples come to realize, begin with questions and then come to realize this could be the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah come to earth. Uh, of course, the religious rulers of the day um, uh, flare up against Jesus and at this point in the story are uh, plotting to have him killed. Um, last week, uh, we read the prayers of Jesus as Jesus prayed for uh, himself, uh, for God to be glorified, for his followers and for those that will come, uh, including the church. And as they finished praying, here we are in John chapter 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, uh, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, he said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you, are, if you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commanders and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. There's a number of things we want to draw out of the text this morning. Uh, the first one's kind of a light point, but something that came to me uh, kind of new in this text that I hadn't seen in the past. It begins with Jesus leading his disciples to a garden. Uh, Jesus, God in human form, uh, walking through a garden with his closest followers. Does it resonate of anything else that you've heard of in Scripture? It drew me back to the creation story 
the opening chapters of Scripture this week as I was thinking about a God who lovingly created and chose to walk with, to live in relationship with humanity. And there's these depictions, these stories of God walking with Adam and Eve in a garden in the dew of the morning, watching a sunset together, right? What a beautiful image. And here we find in this incredibly tumultuous time, a time in which Jesus is being arrested and will soon hang on a cross and die there, uh, Jesus leading his disciples into a garden again, where they would walk together, where they would be together. It, it calls our attention to the past, to this creation story. It also calls our attention towards the future, as we imagine new creation and walking with God as is promised in Scripture. Uh, it also invites me, uh, this week as I was thinking about it, um, the place I meet God in, in my life, just my personal walk, uh, with, with Jesus, uh, is also out in nature. And, and I think of the times that I get to be, uh, by a mountain stream, fly fishing, or even just walking this garden. And when I, when I get to leave my office and go sit out in this garden, uh, and, and have quiet time, um, I'm reminded in this text of God who leads his people to be with him out in creation, out in a garden. Jesus went to this garden often with his disciples, but this time things turned out quite differently than they had in the past. There's, we read of this large crowd coming in, uh, in Matthew chapter 26. There's even more descriptions. So here in John, it talks about the, the torches and the lanterns and the weapons. And in Matthew chapter 26, the words, um, to use to describe it are a large crowd with swords and clubs. And the person who's leading this large crowd, leading this detachment of soldiers, is Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the people in his inner circle who's been praying with him at this garden many times, who's, who's listened to Jesus' teaching many times. And the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal um, with the people he was bringing, that the, the man that I kiss in greeting, which was a very common thing, I mean, think of, think of Europeans, you know, you kiss on the cheeks, whatever it is, but there, there was a common greeting, the, the person I, I, I greet with a kiss, which was a symbol of friendship, the symbol of relationship. This is the person that I am betraying. I don't know if you've ever been betrayed before, um, but it's pretty painful, <laughs> right? It's, it's not, it's not an easy thing, and especially when it's someone close to you. And Jesus knew this was going to happen. He was willing to submit himself to God's plan, knowing that this would happen. But I imagine, as I, as I think about this story and I imagine it, this was quite a painful moment in, in Jesus' life. It's fascinating to me to see Jesus' heart in this moment. Uh, in the text, uh, Jesus requests, let these men go. Uh, you know, I, I love watching movies, and uh, there's often this moment in the movie where, where the hero in the movie, you know, uh, does this really noble thing to protect the others. And uh, it almost, uh, for me, has a potential to cheapen this moment. Thousands of years before cinema and all these heart-wrenching movies, uh, we see Jesus literally living into that character. Uh, we see Jesus uh, standing in this garden, about to be arrested and crucified, instead of hiding behind 
the people that maybe could protect him instead of running from the moment, we see Jesus concerned about his followers, concerned about his disciples. His request to them as he is arrested and will go on alone is leave these men out of it. We see Judas, the character of Judas in this story, the character of Jesus in this story. And then there's also Peter in here. And you got to love Peter, right? Because Peter is always on the forefront. And Peter was ready to fight. He was ready to go down fighting. And he was ready to fight to the death. I mean, here they are completely outnumbered. And, and he, he's the one to pull out a sword. And he's the one to start fighting. That made sense to Peter. But that's not the way of Jesus. It didn't make what did not make sense to Peter in this moment was the surrender and self-sacrifice of Jesus. When Jesus says, "Put this away. We're not going to be fighting today." You know, prior to the mob showing up, Jesus had been praying with his disciples. And so last week we looked at, at John 17 and, and looked at those prayers. In the Gospel of Matthew, a different prayer is also recorded when Jesus uh, takes his disciples to the garden and says, pray with me. Because in Matthew 26, verse 38, he says to them, my soul is overwhelmed to the point to, with sorrow to the point of death. So stay here and keep watch with me. And then going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And three times Jesus prays the same prayer. Three times his disciples fall asleep and he wakes them up. And it is in this moment that the mob comes to arrest Jesus. And as we look at the character of Jesus, he's con- his concern for, for his disciples, we see, we see in here the weight of wrestling with living out agape love. We see how Jesus asks his father, can you, can you take this cup from me? But your will, not my will, be done. And Jesus chooses to follow God. Jesus chooses the way of self-sacrifice, chooses the way of giving of himself for the well-being of others. That is agape love. And God's will will be done. God's will is the plan for redemption, and Jesus is on board to accomplish that. In contrast to the character of Jesus is the character of, of Peter in this moment, who draws a sword and is prepared to fight. It's fascinating to me, this moment uh, in Peter's life, uh, Peter standing next to his Savior, next to Jesus, chooses the posture of the Savior, right? Uh, He's determined that what needs to happen in this moment is we lead a violent revolt uh, to protect Jesus and to see him King of Israel. Peter takes on the role of the hero. He takes on the role of the Savior, standing right next to the Savior. And I think this is fascinating as I, as I spent some time processing this this week, how often we in our lives take on the role of the hero or the Savior, but as Christians, we have a Savior. We'll never be the hero or Savior. 
I think it applies in our own lives. So often I'm convinced I know what's best for me and what I need in this life, and so I take on the role of hero and savior to bring about the things that I think I need in this life, and I do it in the lives of other people too. I think I know what's best for them. I step in and assume that I can fix or or heal or whatever the thing's going on in life. But the thing is, I have a Savior, Jesus. I'm not that Savior. And so I was processing this this week and considering Peter ready to step out and do whatever it takes to accomplish what th- what he needs uh, thinks he, what he thinks needs to happen in this moment, taking on the role of Savior as his Savior stood right next to him. And here's what I'm convinced of, and we'll come back to this at the end: um, we're not called to be the Savior; we're called to be like the Savior. Amen. It's like, yes, (laughs) like I'm supposed to transition, but I'm still listening. (laughs) Um, Verse 14 is really interesting to me as as we were reading it. Uh, Caiaphas was, was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for all the people, if one man died for the people. And this um, was, we read this story in John chapter 11 and had been right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so there was a large following of people that were following Jesus because they had heard of this miracle and the religious leaders, those in power were afraid. They were afraid of losing their power. They were afraid that as Jesus's followers grew in number, they would attract the attention of the Romans, that the Romans would take their temple and, and, and make things even more difficult for them. And so it was in that moment that Caiaphas said, it would be better for us to just get rid of Jesus. It would be better for one man to die for all the people. And it's just so interesting that John keeps bringing this up. It's ironic how misguided Caiaphas's intentions are because Caiaphas here is, is, is simply saying, Hey, this is a potential troublemaker. Let's just dispose of this person. And then we can maintain the status quo. We can maintain the systems and the structures that are in place, which by the way, were, were oppressive to them, but that he was still concerned with maintaining the power that they had. Caiaphas was so misguided, and yet it's ironic and interesting how in some ways Jesus would do just that, that it was God's plan to to sacrifice God's self to save all of humanity, not just the people of Israel. It's a very different mindset. As we talk about the character of Jesus, Caiaphas is holding on to power, even willing to dispose of someone to keep that power. And Jesus instead uses his power and uses his power to save humanity. Caiaphas identifies it's better for one man to die than a whole nation to perish. And uh, that's very pragmatic. It's very practical and accurate. Uh, That is better for the nation of Israel, because if Rome hears that Israel has a new king, they will crack down. There's some truth in what Caiaphas says. But there's this interesting moment in chapter 11 there where Sarah was reading um, uh, in verse 51 and 52, uh, where um, John, the author, the, the narrator, telling the story of Jesus as he experienced it walking with Jesus, 
Jesus, where he, he kind of pops up out of the telling the story to clarify for the reader, here's what you need to understand. And he says, um, Caiaphas, he did not say this on his own, uh, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the Jewish nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. He's clarifying for us. You see, God had a plan. Even as Caiaphas very practically determined, we just got to sacrifice this guy for the sake of the nation, God is working in this moment. God is bringing about his purposes in this story. And so today we read the story of betrayal. Jesus, one of his closest followers, has betrayed him and had him arrested. And the story of betrayal and maybe denial uh, continues. And though this next text, uh, in beginning in verse 15, um, is kind of a separate story, we're going to combine it uh, today and, and finish out here. Simon Peter and the other disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's court, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, uh, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Uh, You aren't one of his disciples, too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around the fire they had, uh, they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there. Oh, I'm jumping down to 25, by the way. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. The section we skipped there uh, will be next week as we look at the trial of Jesus. Uh, so as the story unfolds, Jesus' disciples scatter, which was really his intent. He, he asked that they be released, that they could go free in that moment, except for two who followed closely. Uh, and of course, one of them, Peter, the impulsive one, the one always to act and to engage. But having just cut off the ear of a man trying to arrest Jesus, naturally he's going to be recognizable. Anyone who was there was going to recognize Peter as now he approaches where Jesus is being held as a prisoner. And Jesus had previously predicted that Peter would deny him three times. And Peter didn't believe it. No way I'm going to deny you. And you can see at the garden, he is all in. He is ready to fight even if he had to die. And yet, as the story unfolded differently than what he had expected, we see that Peter denies knowing Jesus three different times. And it's a pretty... um sobering thought to think for me, as I look at this story, to think about how Jesus sees us at our best and Jesus sees us at our worst. He sees us at our worst. Micah, how long have we been married? 20 years this year. Um, I'm sure Micah has seen me at my best and also at my worst, the whole in health and sickness thing of, of marriage vows. She's not seen me at my best. There's still more to come. <laughs> there is more to come. You know, um, uh, a few years ago, I cut my, my hair and I, I cut bangs for the one of the first times. And I really like my bangs and I, I enjoy them. But one of the things that I didn't anticipate that I wasn't told 
is that uh, when you wake up in the morning, and at least for me, with my bangs, they're typically going like straight up. <laughs> like, I, like, yeah, do you sleep on your face? What is I the? Yes, I do. <laughs> because uh, they're like antenna bangs, not like the, the my best look. Can I just put it that way? Sometimes I do like a double take um, in the mirror. But the truth is, crazy hair in the morning isn't isn't our worst, right? When we think about Jesus seeing us at our worst um, in Luke, the, Luke's description of of this moment of Peter's denial. Uh, as soon as Peter denies Jesus for the third time, Jesus turns and looks at him, like right in the right in the eyes. And Jesus sees him in that moment. You know, we can't hide from God. And God sees the best parts of us. And God sees the worst parts of us. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. Often it's the Holy Spirit telling me, hey, do you see this part inside of you that you haven't paid attention to? Like God sees us. God knows us. And Jesus knew Peter would deny him. And in the, mo- in the very moment of his failure, Jesus looks at Peter the good news for, for Peter and the good news for us today is that Jesus' love for us and invitation to relationship with God is not dependent on our goodness or our merit, but is dependent on Jesus' goodness and Jesus' mercy. So in the story of Peter, we'll see coming up that um, when Luke describes how Peter went out and wept bitterly at his failure, at his denial. But Jesus will forgive Peter, and Jesus will love Peter through this challenge, and will continue to invite Peter to participate in his mission, and Peter will become one of the founding uh, members of the, of the church on earth. God will work powerfully through Peter. And so for me, this is a really, in a, in a challenging text, I mean, we're talking about betrayal and denial today. This is a really encouraging thing for me that, that God sees us at our worst and God still invites us to, to know him, to be loved, to follow him. And then God, because God is good, because God is powerful, God will still use us to accomplish his purposes. So as far as application today, uh, the first that I, I want to draw out is um, revolves around just an understanding of the character of Jesus. Jesus, in the midst of being betrayed by his closest followers, being denied by his closest followers, um, the character of Jesus shines true. He is willing to take on the punishment take on the consequences. He's willing to suffer. And his concern is for his followers, not even himself. And of course, Jesus, not a masochist, but instead one who knows that in suffering this, he brings about healing and hope for humanity. The character of Jesus shines strong in this text. But secondly, I said we'd come back to this at the end. Uh, We saw the story of Peter. Uh, standing up to be the Savior, well, the actual Savior is standing right here in an entirely different posture. And so today I'd, I'd propose for us that we consider what posture will we walk with in this world? How will we posture ourselves amongst our friends and coworkers and our community? Are we going to stand up as the Savior and act as though we can accomplish the things that we perceive that need to be done? Or will we fall in line with the actual Savior?
who invites us to be more like him. Jesus, who chooses humility and self-sacrifice and love in the face of betrayal and crucifixion and denial. Will we stand up as the Savior, or will we fall in line and learn to be a little bit more like the actual Savior? We are invited to do just that. We are invited to open ourselves up to God and bring our whole selves to God and, and to see what God has for us, knowing that God sees us as we are and knowing that God loves us and that God is committed to transforming us to be more like him. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us approach the throne of God with confidence. Friends, we have been invited to approach the God of love. We have been invited to approach Jesus who gave himself for all of humanity. We have been invited to find healing and to find restoration, to find purpose and mission in God. And God, the Holy Spirit, will accomplish that in us if we will but say yes and and be willing to receive. That's remarkable. And that verse speaks of confidence. And it's not a confidence in ourselves, but a confidence that we will be received by a God who loves us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity uh, to be together and to read scripture and to explore what you have for us in it. Um, God, we're thankful uh, for Jesus who, uh, in the midst of betrayal and suffering, uh, chooses a posture of love and concern for others. I pray, God, that you will help us to be more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.